this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. Cool. Who are you thinking? David Lynch, obviously. (laughs) I had a feeling. All right, let's do Lynch then. All right, Lynch it is. Nice. Okay. So our next episode will be David Lynch. Holy crap. format first episode of the new format are you ready for this yeah i think so uh, speaking of existential it's kind of appropriate that that's the way we started given we're talking about murakami of all people yep our topic is haruki murakami which i'll probably name the episode so if, if you don't know that after clicking on it we're telling you now yeah uh, wow so so given that we're going into a new format um i kind of don't know where to start here dude um what do you what do you think yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. This is going to be a trailblazing episode because uh, for those who maybe missed the last episode and have missed the stuff we've posted online announcing this, our new format is focused upon creativity. So we decided when we went with the monthly format that we were going to use the time that we had not only to help us promote more um, like posts on the podcast, I mean, uh, posts on the podcast website more and on social media a little bit more. But also use that time to pick a subject, um, musician, writer, whatever we choose that um, we're to spend that month studying the creativity of that person, which would involve obviously um, going into their work and stuff like that, but also reading interviews with them and trying to figure out kind of how their brain works and then coming in here and sharing with each other what we learned. So format wise... I don't know. We're going to figure it out. So stick with us. If this one's a little rough, 
we will dial it in. We're smart people. Uh, let me ask you this, because I, I think this to me is the, the more fascinating thing. It, it, not just the, the fact that we're switching formats, but I, I personally know why I wanted to use Murakami as the subject for the first podcast, but I'm really curious as to, or new podcast with a new format, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to have to Google that right now where we're sitting here, because that, that one we can't leave hanging. But uh, basically, when I read the book, which was probably like five years ago, it blew my mind. So I thought that Lamb would appreciate it. And what did I give that to you, like a year ago? <laughs> yeah, just about. You know, what's, what's funny is I never really, I like Asimov, don't get me wrong, but I read most of Asimov when I was much, much younger, um, probably in my late teens and early 20s. I haven't touched an Asimov book in over a decade, and I forget how good of a writer he is. <laughs> oh, he's brilliant. Uh, it's Caves of Steel. Murakami's existence for quite some time um, because of that. Kafka on the Shore is one heck of an introduction into Murakami, uh, given that the story takes place um, in two completely different storylines that cross paths, kind of. Um, so the odd chapters are one uh, story, and the even chapters are another story. Um, and for me, it was it, it was a very interesting read because it was so different from anything that I'd seen, especially from Japanese authors. Um, and so that was kind of my my dive into the world of Murakami. Um, since then, I've I've grown a very weird admiration and respect for Murakami because he started very late in life as a writer. Um, even though mo both of his parents were in literature, uh, he really didn't start writing, or in his words, he really didn't start creating anything until he was 29 when he was, you know, at a, he was running a jazz club at the time and not really doing anything artistic. So that's why I chose Murakami. Um, for me, he's kind of a, a, an inspiration, um, you know, kind of a, a very clear indicator that it's never too late in life to, to find what you love much less pursue what you love and his success is a, a a very inspiring thing to me yeah he said several times that it happened to him while he was at a baseball game just yeah. suddenly occurred to him i can write a novel i mean that that almost seems like something otherworldly when you tell a story like that so it's kind of appropriate <laughs> considering some of his stories um also interesting is uh i have not read kafka on the shore but uh, I did read Hardboil Wonderland and the End of the World, and that is two stories staggered chapter by chapter as well. You know what's interesting is, is a movie or a story captivating enough for us to suspend disbelief? Totally. And yeah. I think that at one point, uh, Asimov might be somebody we might have to do. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. When it comes to creativity, it's hard to beat Isaac Asimov in the sense that the man wrote so many books that there's actually no verifiable list of how many books he's written which is is mind-boggling if you if if you don't believe me just go to wikipedia type in isaac asimov and go down to bibliography and just look at the a's there's probably <laughs> about 40 books just in the letter a uh he he released i think it was like 20 to 30 books a year sometimes science-based all kinds of different things on shakespeare everything it's funny, um, looking back on that, I can't, despite the fact that he was as prolific as he was as a writer, I can't recall reading a single book or short story of his that I didn't like. Oh, yeah. And it, I think it's he was one of those people that just lived and breathed the work in the sense that um, um, for some people that the work is something that's outside of what they do, but like mm -hmm. everything he did was engrossed in it. Like, I don't think the man watched television. Yeah. Um, but anyways, he also used to do the, um, he's the guy that wrote all of the, for the San Jose Mercury News, you know, all the little trivia questions. Mm -hmm. If you, I don't know if they still use some of them, but for a long time they were Isaac Asimov's. He wrote those. 
Oh man, I promise there's someone out there who's archived those. We got to find that. I, I they may still be using them in the paper today, but uh, I don't think so because a lot of them are like more modern questions. And since he's dead, uh, that would be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but given Asimov's uh, you know ability to prolifically write, I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt that they have enough for like the next two decades. Right. So um, another question about your scientific, I mean about your um, science fiction delving currently. Does that affect your writing and maybe even your photography? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's affected me quite a bit. Um, I think the combination of Asimov um, and Lynch together over the last month has kind of unhinged my imagination quite a bit. Um, so I'm diving back into a lot of these old stories that I'd written um, and kind of reworking them to my modern sensibilities, which has been an interesting experiment. Uh, one story in particular about um, basically there's this this princess that's being led across a desert by uh, her guardian and every single morning she wakes up and completely forgets. So she basically has a, a amnesia um, and she forgets where she is or why she's there and what's going on. And so every single morning he has to convince her of who she is and it's kind of like a space version of Groundhog's Day. It's kind of interesting. So yeah, it's 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 dramatically affected uh, my writing and beyond just my writing, my my narrative sensibilities as well. Now, does that in some way does that aesthetic? Because um, I feel like science fiction brings an aesthetic with it. Does that affect like uh, your photography at all? Like, do you, do you see images differently? Yeah, um, I I just did uh, some promotional videos for uh, Crystal's company. Um, and there's definitely more of a sci-fi edge to them than anything that I traditionally do. Uh, you know, we're using more halogen lights and more interesting am uh, camera angles and cuts and stuff. And even though the the the, the images in the video aren't inherently science science fiction, they have a very weird sci-fi feel to them, which is interesting as well. Yeah, that's I think what I've always found fascinating about the arts in general is there's always some kind of underlying a narrative going on in the mind of the creator that maybe that the audience is unaware of. Um, I'm sure we're going to dive into this even deeper when we talk about Lynch, because that's pretty <laughs> much, I just pretty much defined everything that he does. Um, but I love that idea that, you know, like I could look at these pictures and I might not see that. But then when you tell me that now, all of a sudden I'm seeing them through a different lens. And I think I was reading something about, uh, I think it was Lynch and he was talking about how he hates to explain films but I feel like also sometimes by giving those backstories to things, you can enhance things for people. Sure. Um, but I, I think I remember um, reading that same interview, and it specifically was about Eraserhead um, and how even to this day he ha he's, he's really irky about um, giving his explanation as to what Eraserhead was ultimately about. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it can enhance it. But I also think there are certain um, films, like I think, um, you know, some Aronofsky stuff as well as some Lynch stuff, some of the weirder projects that they've done. I, I like the fact, as frustrating as it is as a moviegoer, I like the fact that they haven't explained it. Um, but there are definitely some stories that greatly benefit from explanation. Well, yeah, even like not even sometimes explanation too. you know, like, for example, if I'm if I'm watching uh, Interstellar and I find out that uh, that the writer was reading, we'll say the Maltese Falcon at the time. That, yeah, might, yeah. that not, might not have purposely influenced anything in there, but it may enhance my viewing in some way to, the, you know, like I'm going to watch the movie again. Now, this time I'm going to watch it through the lens of knowing that he was reading the Maltese Falcon when he wrote this script. And that's, that can enhance things for me in a way. And I feel like that's to go into a little bit of what I've been doing recently. Um, that's kind of what I'm delving into right now is kind of sharing, sharing more what I'm doing. On, on the back end of things 
Um, as you know, I stopped doing daily vlogs. Um, I did not stop doing videos. I'm just, I, I reached the point where I needed more production time to achieve the things that I wanted to. And 24 mm -hmm. hours was just not cutting it. Um, no pun intended. Huh. Uh, <laughs> but in the because I got used to having that time allotted every day to that one specific task, um, which was great. I mean, I was doing something creatively every day, but other creative things in my life suffered because of that. For instance, my novel or just my writing in general. But I got used to that a lot of time. So I've been using that same allotted time every day in creative avenues, but just in many, many more ways. And I've given up on this idea of like this. Um, I used to have this idea that there was a universal uh, usage for social media and websites and things like that. When you do this type of thing, you do it on this website and this website, you know, like trying to bring all that into one package. And I've just realized that it's way more fun to just be scattered. And sure. today I feel like putting this one on Twitter and tomorrow <laughs> I feel like putting this one on Facebook and then the day after that i feel like putting it on everywhere i'm just spreading out what i'm doing like i've been playing a lot with pinterest just um i realized you know like uh i talked a little bit about this in the last video that i did on my channel but basically when you're when you're finding these images and things um visual obviously because pinterest is a visual medium you you normally people will save these things either on their computer or they'll bookmark them or they'll put them in Evernote or OneNote or even um, Apple Notes or, or take a screenshot and save it in their photos. And I realized that what you're doing there is you're, you're finding these things that are great, that are inspiring you. Um, you're kind of putting them in disparate places where maybe you have to go dig them up later to look at them. Um, but you're hoarding them. You're hoarding them away from the world. And I realized that Pinterest does the same thing that all these other things will do, save these images for me, but it puts it forward in a way that other people can look at them and maybe be inspired by them too. Um, so uh, because of that, I'm in love with Pinterest right now. And well, let's get into the let's get into the nitty gritty a little bit, though. I mean, uh, a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about um, uh, backing out of the the daily vlog thing and adding a lot more creative projects into your life, what what projects are you working on right now? Uh, the novel is is number one uh i'm also i've been this is this sounds strange maybe to some people but um a big creative project for for me right now is my notebook um mm. just working on uh i'm making it visually appealing so i'm learning lettering and i'm uh doing sketches within there and it's it's not something that necessarily is um what you would normally make as a product to share with the world but it's something mm -hmm. that it by doing that, it brings more creativity out of me. So it's like reinvesting your money, you know, um, when you get your money, your profits from your business, putting it back into the business. So working on the journal is in a way is that for me. And it, it blossoms other ideas. I, I got a video idea out of just what I sketched or a little uh, word sketch that I did during um, the time that I was listening to jazz on my birthday. Um, so it brings things out. I end up with sketches. It gives me things to share on Instagram, which is fo um, photos of the sketches that I'm doing. I've also been playing a lot with the Instagram stories thing. Um, it's just kind of it's a fun thing. People actually watch these things, which is cool. Um, and just trying to share a little bit more of what's going on behind the scenes. You know, I'm reading this book right now. Boom. Put a picture up of the book cover for the Instagram story. 
um just kind of stuff like that like i'm i'm just trying to have fun and uh really focus on that um passion that and that that's found in quiet you know what's tough about that is you know for for people like you and i um we and I, I kind of had a rediscovery about this recently too. Is that we 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 kind of start using these these medias like social media, for example, um, as as business tools or marketing outlets or any number of serious potential things that they are. But we forget to do the most important thing with them, which is to have fun. <laughs> yeah, you know what I, th- I was thinking about um, yesterday is I remember, and I'm sure the viewers out there who are not uh, friends of ours can relate to this as a phase perhaps that they went through with um, Instagram as well. There was a period of time where um, Instagram was everything, especially for um, our group of friends. And it was, mm-hmm. it, it, it almost got to a point where it was an art. Um, take this photo because we're here doing this. Okay. You stand mm-hmm. there. You do, And we, we were setting up essentially like these little mini photo shoots and it was, it was fun then. It was fun to watch, see, see what people were putting up. Remember, we did that Stoke Sunday thing where you, Brandon, <laughs> and I drove around taking pictures, um, cheesy pictures of thumbs ups and random places, um, just kind of stuff like that. And I think that that's kind of what I've been trying to rediscover is how to use these things not only as fun or or business, like you said, but to use them as creative mediums. Sure. Um, how to be creative with them and how to inspire other people to be creative with them. Because I feel like when I start doing that, then it enhances everything else that I'm doing. You know, if you watch my vlogs and you pick me up on one of my social medias, it's going to enhance the vlog. Uh, sorry, I can't use the term vlog anymore. It's going to enhance the video experience for you. Um, if you read my uh, blogs, I've been blogging more, just even doing little micro blogs. Um, if you listen to this podcast, any place you pick me up, it's just going to enhance the experience. You're going to find out, you know, a week ago, like Trista did, that I was watching a video on, on David Lynch, and she guessed correctly that David Lynch was the subject of today's podcast. Very so, nice. So I, I feel like that that's where I am right now, and I'm, I just, I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, it's funny how that works, um, especially with my Instagram. Now I'm starting to, to getting back into using filters. And, you know, there was a period of time in which I was I was kind of anti-editing uh, when it came to my photos, um, or at least not, not anti-editing, but anti-over-editing. But now, be, and maybe it's because of, of the Lynch stuff that I've watched recently or, or because I'm diving back into Asimov, I just don't care anymore. Um, I want to get as crazy as physically possible with some of these pictures just to see how far I can push a visual image. Um, and I think that there's a certain sense of fun in that that throws me back into the sandbox as a photographer and allows me to just play with the tools in a way that I haven't in a really, really long time because my mentality has been... You know, especially lately, my mentality has been, how do I use this for business? Or how do I get a marketing angle out of this? Or how do I use this to, to monetize? You know, I'm, I'm kind of just letting go of that for a while and trying to figure out why I liked doing these things in the first place. And I feel like it, it, it's going to be better for everything in the long run anyways. If you're having fun, right, people are going to jump in because it's fun and they want to follow something that's fun. Sure. You know, we don't all, we don't want to be marketed to. I mean, the best marketing in the world makes you feel like you're not being marketed Sure. It, it makes you feel like you're part of an experience. Uh, at the very, at the very least, it makes you feel entertained. You know, like some of the marketing campaigns that I've loved over the last two decades have been campaigns that feel very much like the the creators 
felt an inherent responsibility to entertain me in some way, whether it's serious or, or comedic. Um, there's definitely a sense of care that's 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 placed on those things that makes me care more about it. Right. Like I was just watching this thing yesterday. Uh, YouTube is slowly rolling out um, what's called community pages. And at first I didn't really understand what it was, but then I realized it's actually quite brilliant. Um, essentially, without going too deep into this, because we don't really do this stuff anymore, but it does fit into creativity. It, you have subscribers on YouTube. You're, you're dropping videos to them. But sometimes you want to share things that aren't videos. I mean, you don't want to share a photo. Do, you know, the kind of stuff that I'm talking about, that we're talking about right now. Well, the community page is going to allow people to do that. And mm -hmm. I was watching a video of a guy talking about this, and he said... Um, this was way before my time with at least putting stuff on YouTube, but there was a period of time where YouTube had something called lean back and it was essentially, it would just play things and you couldn't interact with the videos. It would just play the videos that I, I believe that you were subscribed to. And, uh, because they thought that that's what people wanted. People wanted to be immersed in something. Um, and that that's what advertisers would want. And then they found out that all of their views went down from that because what people really wanted to do was watch the video and get involved in the comments and to become part of the experience. Sure. And I, I think that that's even for businesses, that's, that's an important thing to do is to look at where the creative impulse is, where the fun is, where, where all of the things are that aren't the business part of it because that leads to business. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think it, it, all of the stuff that we're talking about now, now kind of leads pretty pretty well into our discussion about Lynch because that's the one thing that that you that's always been true in Lynch's entire filmography is that he's just kind of done whatever he wanted to do, um, and I think that there's 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 something to be said for that for for creators um, like you and I, for example, where I think we get into the trap of trying to get views or trying to, to, to produce monetization or revenue somehow. And so because of that, we lose, we lose the, the core essence of what, what it is that we're doing, which is we're, we're inherently creating. And once we start losing, losing sight of the fact that, that, you know, the creation should be for the sake of itself, then we start to, to get things like writer's block and we, we find ourselves stuck in holes um, creatively where we have a hard time fighting our way out of it because our brains are just in the wrong place. Yeah, you're, I mean, like it's a perfect segue in the sense that, and we did not plan this. Um, <laughs> Lynch talks about. I, I've been reading his book. I I wouldn't. I wanted to finish it before today, but it's actually I felt the need to slow down because um, there was a lot in the book, and it's a very short book. It's called uh, Catching the Big Fish. Mm -hmm. um, but in there, he talks about the idea of he goes into a movie, and this is something we touched on a little bit with. Um, the Murakami thing, the idea of not knowing where you're going. Uh, he goes in not knowing and he learns what the movie's about while he's making it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that's, that is the creativity that we're talking about. This idea of like using a medium as an exploration of self. Uh, I mean, that's what, that's the difference between art and craft. Uh, sure. Craft mm -hmm. is making something. It could be the same exact thing, but our art is exploring it in a way that explores yourself and, exposes other people to your point of view and lynch is you're right he's the epitome of that he in sure. every way uh and we both found out that when we were doing this that we've seen what i've seen every every one of his films except for one which was a straight story the disney movie he made and you saw all of them except for that one as well or did you see that yeah one? i i didn't even know it existed strangely <laughs> and oddly enough it happened 
fairly recently. It happened within the last 20 years that he did a Disney film. Huh, strange. I, I want to know what happened in that discussion. How did they go, oh, this guy that did a movie about a severed ear and uh, Dennis Hopper yelling uh, about <laughs> how he wants to bleep Blue Velvet. Uh, we want you to come and make a movie for us. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's one of those moments of just sometimes you have the the opportunity to work with a brilliant, almost generation defining director, um, and regardless of what he, you know, because I, and it doesn't seem that far a stretch to me in the sense that I think Lynch, if given the, the parameters for an audience, he has such a vivid imagination that he can produce something that would. I mean, I don't, I don't know, obviously, because I haven't seen the, the the Disney project, so I don't know if it's any good or not. But um, I definitely don't see it being that far of a stretch for him in a weird kind of way. Well, Fantasia was a Disney movie, and that's about as Lynchian as you can get. Yeah, right? true. <laughs> like, what is this about? This is the oh, this film is basically the collective unconscious of what you're feeling when you hear this music. Sure. And that's that's. I, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say that's the focus of this book. He's he talks about um, meditation and going into the un, uh, unconscious or the subconscious. Sure. And I feel like that is something that comes up a lot too. This idea of meditation um it, are you meditating we were talking about this a little bit the other day yeah i mean I'm, I'm trying to um the one thing that that i think is difficult in in this modern age is that i think i think in order to meditate properly you have to have such a ruthless discipline um because you know there's so many distractions there's so many things you quote unquote have to do throughout the course of a day um, and finding half an hour to, to to park yourself somewhere and 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 turn it all off is actually harder to do than it sounds. Um, and I think, although I've been doing it more and more, I think I still struggle with with forcing myself to do it. So yeah, I have been, but I I, I don't think it'll really take hold until I consistently do it um, and until I consistently carve out a certain amount of time um, in which I I dedicate nothing but, you know, I, I I dedicate it strictly to the meditation and nothing else. It's a strange thing. I, I'm, I'm going to remember the number wrong, but uh, he said that he has he does 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the afternoon every day, and he's done it and hasn't missed a single one in like 40 years. Jeez, see ruthless discipline. It, that's what it requires. I, I, I think it's it's. I don't even know that it's discipline. I think that it's it's part of his identity. Like, sure. He doesn't feel like David Lynch if he doesn't do it. Hmm. And. I think that, that that's one of the most interesting things about him is like this idea. He's such a meditative, um, calm human being. A, and I imagine that because of that, in some way, he's fairly enlightened as a person. Uh, yet his films are so I guess, chaotic at times and um, sometimes psychotic. Uh, I, th I think that, that that disconnect would kind of blow people's minds. Yeah, but I think in a certain kind of way, because he's freed himself from so many shackles, I mean, I think that's part of the problem with living a continuous life without breaks for meditation, um, or at least uh, without severing the, 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 the cord to your current reality, is that you start to build in more and more assumptions, um, especially as you get older, um, because you need the world to have rules that you don't have to redefine constantly. And I think 
a guy like Lynch is free of that. Um, I think he's free of of the constraints of having to make assumptions about the world that he lives in. So he approaches everything without a preconceived notion about what it should be. It's it's the same thing as our, our Murakami discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at a lot of uh, his his. It doesn't even matter what era of work you look at from Lynch. I mean, um, there, you know, you have Eraserhead, for example, and and the Elephant Man, kind of back to back, and they couldn't be more different um, when it comes to to their narrative um, storytelling or even their general style. But they're both absolutely brilliant. And if you didn't know, you wouldn't have guessed that they were made by the same guy. <laughs> it's a crazy thing. He says uh, exactly what Murakami said as well. Uh, everything starts with an image. Yeah, uh, he says that the reason it's called catching the big fish is he says uh, you get one image. He says and you just you hold it, he says, and then that brings in a fish, and then you hold that fish, and then that brings in a bigger fish and a bigger fish, and then eventually you have the whole thing, which is the project. And like for for Blue Velvet, it started with um, started with uh, I can't remember what the first image was, but then it was the song, the Bobby Vinton song called Blue Velvet, and then it was the ear in the field. And he says what he does is he takes these completely unconnected images and he puts them next to each other and he tries to figure out how they work in context of each other and then that's what his film becomes. And that's why sometimes even he doesn't know what certain parts of them mean. Like the blue box in Mulholland Drive. He says, I to this day still do not know what that box is. <laughs> and that's rare for a filmmaker. You're absolutely right. Like He is freed of that where he doesn't feel like he has to have that answer. Sure. I mean, in in a lot of ways, he feels more like a documentarian than a filmmaker in the sense that it feels like David Lynch as a person um, is a person that is just hand-holding his imagination through its own wildings, you know, through through its own stream of consciousness. So he, he just happens to be the passenger that knows most about the journey, but he's a passenger along with the rest of us as well. And that's what's really interesting about some of his work. And I feel like b- between Murakami and this one, it's a message to both you and I to just kind of ride the ship. And, sure. <laughs> and and you stop trying to define the ending before we get there and just ride it and see where it goes. And I th- if, if it's a message to us, that's a message to everyone else out there, too. Don't um, don't try to control your projects too much. Let them live. Let them breathe and let them control themselves. Uh, it's hard to do. I suck at it. Yeah, and I, I think the meditation thing is definitely uh, something that helps me. Every time I do it, I feel I feel reinvigorated. You know, I feel like I, I I'm ready to take on whatever it is, um, and especially artistically. Um, I, I remember. That, let me find it. There's a quote that I have from him about meditation that I really like that I thought you would dig. Um, it's meditation is to dive all the way within, beyond thought, to the source of thought and pure consciousness. It enlarges the container every time you transcend. When you come out, you come out refreshed filled with energy and enthusiasm for life. And I think that there's such a palpable truth to that for me. Um, I'm excited about coming out of meditation. I'm excited about uh, about rejoining the world because I now feel like I have a different, a different scope to see it by. And I feel like every single time I do it, I, I get a little bit clearer of a picture of what it is that I'm trying to do, not just creatively, but just as a person, you know, what, what I'm trying to achieve in my lifetime, um, before I, I, I shuffle off the mortal coil, you know? So it's really interesting to hear that from a guy like, like Lynch and to see how, you know, to, I didn't know that he hadn't missed a meditation session in 40 years, but in a lot of ways, looking back at his work, you can definitely see the, the, the effect that, 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 or the freedom that that allows a person, you know, the ability to, to, to not live within a, a preconceived, 
world or, 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 or a, a comfortable box in which you are creatively. I mean, there are plenty of great directors that we know that have produced fantastic movies, but they definitely live within a box. You know, if you look at a guy like J.J. Abrams or Zack Snyder, two of the bigger guys out right now, they definitely have a box of tricks that they live within. And as brilliant as some of their movies are, they're very predictably J.J. Abrams or, you know, Zack Snyder or, or David Fincher or whoever it is. And this is not to diminish the quality of their work. It's just to say that with a guy like Lynch, you could watch 10 Lynch movies in a row. And sure, some of them may have some similarities. Um, but I think the only real similarity, uh, the only real cohesive line that you have between all of them is how inherently different they all really are. Yeah, I think that quote is actually from the book itself. And he goes into this whole idea of diving into this unconscious, like, that uh, normal, because he's he's a practitioner of transcendental meditation, which is um, revolves around uh, a mantra that's given to you by a guru. I don't know the mechanics of it, um, and he goes in there. He says that there, there there's a definite difference between that type of meditation and normal meditation, which is kind of what you and I are more familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, and he says that you know, like it it'll calm you and it brings you to a sense of awareness, and and it it's beneficial to you in every way. But the transcendental meditation, he says, dives you into that unconscious in a completely different way. It, it doesn't take you to the border. It throws you over the line. And he says, and what's on the other side of that line, it's, it's not hokey and it's not goofy like people think when they talk about uh, meditation or they hear about meditation. It's a thick beauty is the term that he uses. And, I've, and that, that's kind of stuck with me, this idea of thick beauty. And I think that the, at, at its heart, like the best parts of his movies have that thick beauty, like that moment of in a Mulholland Drive in the middle of the movie where the woman is singing uh, the Roy Orbison song in Spanish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thick beauty. Mm hmm. Oh, it's there are so many poignant moments in, in Lynch films. I the, the his ability to do that in such a sincere way is so is, is is difficult for me to watch sometimes. I remember I mean because I, I watched Eraserhead probably long before I was ready to. Um, I, I saw it in my early teens, so I didn't get it at the time. Um, and I actually thought it wasn't it wasn't a very good movie when I first watched it or watched it. Um, and I only appreciated it later on. But then I think when I was nineteen, somewhere eighteen or nineteen, I saw The Elephant Man and that movie changed my life, um, changed the course of my creativity, changed my ability to tell a narrative story, changed my sensibilities as a person in so many ways. Um, and I think that the, 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 that is, that is a movie that from beginning to end smacked me in the face with that, 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 that thick beauty that you're describing. Um, and it hit me at, at, at a level that I didn't think any piece of art ever could. I think, uh, God, that movie is just so great. And I mean, if, if, people haven't seen it it's young anthony hopkins yeah <laughs> and i mean I, I was thinking about that while we're, i was going through stuff for this episode i'm like how in the hell did he get anthony hopkins and i was like oh because he was like nobody then like he was yeah, just a yeah. shakespearean actor he hadn't been you know it wasn't until later in life that hopkins like became hannibal lecter and then just his career took off so just to think about this young david lynch and this young anthony hopkins making this movie and and I would say it's it's I haven't seen the straight story, which is the Disney movie, so that might take the place later. But I would say of everything else, which is what fifteen other movies, that is his most straightforward. Elephant Man is his most 
normal film, if you can use the word normal. I totally agree, I, and w- which is funny because um, I hold it side by side with Lost Highway, uh, which is in my my top five for for Lynch films. Um, but they're so different. Um, I mean, let's not forget that John Hurt, one of the best actors in the history of Hollywood, um, was was um, Joseph Merrick Merrick um, in The Elephant Man, um, changed from the original name of John Merrick, but still, I mean, it was the performances were unbelievable. The subtlety in that movie is 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 unique um in the the lynch um collection in the sense that there's just a lot of weird silence in that movie and slow movements and and subtle emoting that made the movie so much more powerful um but it's such a departure from anything else like i mean if you go back to back because if you looked at the two biggest movies of that era of of lynchian films um it's eraserhead and then elephant man and they're so different (laughs) they're so different as movies yeah, the only thing that really connects them is the fact that they're both in black and white, and that there's a freak in both of them. Yeah, which is which is even stranger because the 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 when looking back on the the creation of the Elephant Man, uh, Lynch actually shot that in color film and then processed it in black and white so Ooh, that I he would get richer tones out of it. Yeah, so the tones are are, are a weird density like there's there's a richness to the black and white, and the reason why that was was because it was shot on color film. So okay. it's interesting. Interesting, interesting, and that's a common technique for photographers in general to shoot photos in color, and then turn them into black and white and post to maintain. Yep, those, that's true. That mm-hmm. depth, but of course he was doing that thirty years before any of us. You know, the, of course these days in Photoshop and 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 you know with our even with our phones these days it's easy to do. But imagine the the nightmarish endeavor that is taking film stock and converting it from color to black and white. I can't even imagine. Incredible, and and think about the person that was uh funding that film going oh (laughs) but it was the right choice and and yeah that movie it was made in the early 80s i mean most people when they watch that movie think it was made much earlier than that but it was actually made in the early 80s um when films like that were unheard of you know you're 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 holding this next to 16 candles in the breakfast club and 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 you know movies like star wars even um it was such a different film it was so much more subtle and so much more slow um, and that's that's that takes a bravery that that you know not just from Lynch's perspective, but from the people who funded that movie, from the people who who let two Shakespearean actors in Anthony Hopkins and um, um, John Hurt take such prominent roles in an expensive movie. And of course, in in examining that movie for what it is, you know who better than Mel Brooks um, to produce it, and he's the one that ended up producing it too as well. So I think it's that whole project is just fascinating from beginning to end. What a what a from an early stage, what a clear sense of vision. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's rare, but I think that it goes back to what we're saying here is that he's, he's willing to take the journey to him. Creativity is, is about the journey. And I guess you can't help, but be clear if you're ready to turn at any moment. And that goes back to what I was saying about follow the project. I think sometimes we all get caught up in this idea of fighting against something to make it what it was. Um, or make it what we thought it was going to be or what we want it to be. And, sure. and and we end up trying to do essentially what we describe as putting a square block in a, in a round hole. Um, it just doesn't work. Uh, for example, like going back into my novel for a second, I went through a huge thing on Monday. Uh, I was looking at it and I'm going, how am I going to make this work? How am I going to make this part is not working for me. Why isn't this working? And I had to do what Stephen King refers to as kill your darling. 
Yeah. And I, I killed a whole section of the book because I realized that it was extraneous, that I did not need it, and that I was working really hard to make it fit into the context of the book, and it was actually an obstacle. And if I don't think if, if I hadn't been studying Murakami uh, last month and studying Lynch this month that I that I maybe I might not have made that decision. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, how 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 difficult is it from your perspective as a writer to to invest so much time and energy into either a character or a setting and then have to off it? <laughs> it's frustrating. It really is. But I mean it's you have to remind yourself and it's it's impossible because you know that's why the phrase kill your darlings is so prevalent right now i've heard it come up so many times recently um because people are it's starting to sink in for people because there are things that you create that they are they're not your children because that doesn't cover it they're your darlings you know there's there's a preciousness to these creations and we work so hard to make them work but you have to realize that the bigger darling is the project itself is mm-hmm. the movie is the book and uh keeping this one little thing uh what's it going to do is it going to ruin the whole thing well if it ruins the whole thing then it ruins the darling itself too so you have to make that sacrifice and it's hard it is a sacrifice um but you once you do it and then things start moving forward you know you made the right choice and that's the beauty of creation. You can always reverse gears. You know, if you if I kill this section of the book and I move forward and I go, oh, crap, I need that. I still have it. I can still yeah. put it in. Uh, editing is the most underrated art of all time, both in video, in photography, in writing, in everything. Editing is everything. Sure. Uh, and I think that the Lynch is a great example of that, too. I mean, his editing the the way he what he does you know this idea where he talks about juxtaposing two images that's all done through the editing sometimes sometimes sure. the, spe- the the scenes that there's no connection between some scenes mm-hmm. he slams things up together for the juxtaposition oh god lost highway <laughs> that's, that's lost highway much... is the most jarring movie of all time i i absolutely love it um but lost highway i i remember seeing it with people who um weren't weren't really fans of lynch or not not really fans but just didn't really know of his work you know just kind of the 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 standard moviegoer and how jarring of an experience a movie like lost highway really is if you have no if you have no background on who lynch is or how he does the things that he does yeah it's 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 like he he went to the the extreme on editing and and scatter with lost highway and then he came in with mulholland drive and kept that same aesthetic but then now he introduced this duality thing that just screws with your head for the whole movie. Yeah. And and I don't know that, uh, I wouldn't say that he screws with people, but he definitely plays against expectations. Um, he knows what people expect and he, instead of, so a lot of times you, you have this, there's a line in the middle, right? And that's the expectation and people go to the right. They want to fulfill that expectation. Um, I think as far as I know, Lynch is the only filmmaker who goes to the left. He goes as far and he leads you further so far away from your expectation that that becomes the whole experience, that the experience is about exploring something that is shouldn't have been possible, essentially. Let me ask you this, though. I mean, I, I feel like there's there's 
some of some of it's grounded in a reality though. I mean, Lost Highway obviously is just all over the map um, when it comes to its themes um, and its narrative storytelling. But if you look at a movie like Blue Velvet, for example, that one goes to the left, but it goes to the left in a very visceral way. Um, like that's a pretty brutal movie to watch, um, and the themes are pretty pretty ruthless as well. Um, so, I, I, what do you think about that as 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 a medium to reset the audience? For example, I, th- I think part of the reason why Lynch does it is so that he can get the 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 audience back to a zero point on their expectations, and then he can build a story around that. Well, definitely, he's the master of of swiping them and then pulling them and prodding them and turning them. And it's because he's not actually trying to do it to them. He's trying to do it to himself. Sure. And and we have no choice but to go with him, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like we're 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 we've been kidnapped, but you know we've been kidnapped as collateral. You know, it's like Daddy was the one that got kidnapped, and we just happened to go with him. You know, we're stuck in the situation because of what Daddy did, and yeah. that's essentially what Lynch is doing. He's just he's. He's finding out. He's he sees he knows how to pull that comfort in, so he doesn't lose the audience completely. I mean, there is a plot structure to everything, uh, although sometimes it is tenuous, um, and even he will admit that. But then he he sees a, a spot where there's no light shining, and he goes, "What's over there? Let's go over there." Sure. And, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember in Inland Empire, there's that rabbit thing. Mm-hmm. With the rabbits yeah. watching TV and like walking around the house, and it's, oh, yeah. it's 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 for people who haven't seen it. It's essentially it's it's people in bunny suits, um, just acting like a like a nineteen fifties family. Um, there's no explanation to it. There's no explanation to how it fits in the movie or anything like that. But it's it's something that he brought in maybe just as one small idea, and he just kept going. Well, what if I make it a little bit longer? If I make it a little bit longer, and then I mean, Inland Empire in my opinion, uh, is almost the opposite of Lost Highway. Lost Highway was scatter, jump, 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 jump. Inland Empire is like, how long can this scene go? Yeah, definitely true. How far can I push this scene? And I think that uh, he understands how to keep an audience, but he also understands how to sometimes betray the audience to their benefit. Sure. I feel like even in some of his more predictable work, like, I mean, the the two based on, well, no, most of his stuff is based on something, but I mean, the two that are based on books, um, like, I'm, I'm going to bring back one of my favorites into this discussion, which is Dune. Um, love the book, love the movie, two completely different pieces that have nothing to do with each other. Um, and I think in a lot of ways for me, um, it was... Dune, as both the book and the movie, kind of taught me to separate the two pieces and to view them as as brilliant pieces of work without comparing them to each other. And I think that that Lynch's Lynch's sensibilities in in the movie um, created a very different universe for me than the book did. So yeah, definitely, I think he he has a way of pushing and pulling the story um, in the way that makes the most sense to him in the moment in which the story is being told. It's almost like he's making it up as he goes, um, and there's definitely a very clear sense of that. But Somehow he manages to weave it all together um, in such a way that the story then makes some kind of collective sense. And I think there's there's such a skill to that that's that's pretty fascinating. Dune's also a favorite of mine. Uh, I think technically, if I remember correctly, that's the first Lynch film I ever saw. Um, huh. But technically, neither of us saw that as a Lynch film because it was not released as a David Lynch film. David, True. He, Alan Smithied it. And for those mm-hmm. who don't know what that means, when a director makes a film... And uh, 
they're not happy with the final product, they will have their name removed. And the fictitious name Alan Smithy is added yes. to the credits. <laughs> David Lynch directed Dune. I don't know the whole story of why um, why he Alan Smithied it. I do know that there are like four or five different edits of that film that I've run across. And these aren't like minor differences, you know, like this is the shorter version, this is the extended version. Um, one has a male narrator, another one has a female narrator. One has this scene and not this scene, but the other one has this scene and not this scene. There's no definitive version of that film. Sure. And, and I think what probably happened is he lost control of final edit and he, he told them to shove it. Yeah, I think in 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 reading what I did about Dune because that that movie fascinated me. Yeah, I've I've seen so many different versions of it. And if you take the shortest version and the longest version, the stories are very different. Um and I remember reading somewhere that that Lynch as he was making it felt like he was making compromises for the studio along the way. Um and yeah, he definitely didn't have final cut, but the 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 compromises are ultimately what made him feel um, like he had lost control of the movie and it wasn't the studio's fault. It was because he felt like he had a responsibility to the studio to make a certain kind of movie. Um, I think the final theatrical release was close to his cut, but I think that the version that they ultimately really released on TV was almost an extra hour longer and contained footage that he had no desire to put in the final product. So I think that's part of the reason why it became a, an Alan Smithy um, versus um, him having any attachment to it at all. Um, it, I think later on he said that there were parts of the movie he was definitely proud of, but the final the final product was so askew from his original vision that he didn't want to have his name on it. Not that it was necessarily a bad film, but that the story was very different from his original intention. And I think that's probably why he stopped working with books, right? It's, it's, I mean, when you're working with a book for subject matter, you're kind of responsible to finish it at least kind of close to how the book ends. True. And for someone who does all the things that we're talking about that, that follows the journey, to have a definitive storyline laid out and to have to concede to that. I mean, like even Elephant Man had to be different difficult for him because he had to conform to the man's actual life mm -hmm. uh, john merrick was a real person and the elephant man is a, is a beautiful book by christina sparks um and maybe that's the reason he changed his name to joseph merrick because maybe mm -hmm. he changed some elements that he of the man's life um i just i think that 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 would be difficult i mean when you really look at the succession of films, and I may be wrong in the order because I'm not going to look right now, but we go from Eraserhead, which is a pretty crazy film, to <laughs> <That's pretty wildly. laughs> Elephant Man, which is a pretty is his most restrained film as mm -hmm. far as craziness. Then to Dune, right? Yep, it's Dune right after that. Yeah, and then Wild at Heart. Um, I'm not sure if Wild at Heart is first or Blue Velvet's first. Either but it's, way. But but they're both around the same time, so it doesn't matter. Either way, I mean, it just if either one of those fits in in the storyline, where it's like I tried to make this movie Dune, and then screw this, I can't do this storyline thing, Blue Velvet or Wild at Heart, you're gonna drop in like this crazy film that's the complete opposite that goes back to the Eraserhead aesthetic. And yeah, and and let's not forget that very soon after that. Um, he started working on the project that I, I would assume that most of the general public knows him for, which is Twin Peaks. Oh, yeah, which is coming back in 2017, by the way. 
Yeah, I can't wait for that. I'm really curious. I totally forgot about it until like a week ago, and I'm like, wait, shouldn't that be out already? And I had to look it up. And of course, you know, there's like nothing. It's all hush hush. It just says 2017. Even if that sucks, which I doubt it's going to, I'm in. It's just like the X Files. When the X Files came back, I don't care. I liked it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it came back against all expectations, something you love. And in the case of Twin Peaks, something you love that lived very briefly comes back. That's pretty incredible. And for Lynch to be willing to dive back into that, for those who aren't like huge Twin Peaks fans, um, it's not a weird thing that he's doing this. Actually, um, some people think that he always planned to bring Twin Peaks back. Because there are many times within the show Twin Peaks, which was only two seasons, technically like a season and a half, mm-hmm. um, many times in the show where they mention 25 years in the future. 2017 is 25 years in the future from when the show originally aired. Which that continuity alone is unbelievable. Ugh, the genius of that. I, I, I'm, I'm. I, I can't imagine the deal that he made with whoever he made in order to to ensure that it would be possible to make that 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 continuation 25 years later. I'm sure considering who Lynch is that that was completely planned. It says it says a lot about who he is as a as a as a person, as a director, as a creator that number one all these actors are willing to come back. And even like even in his films how many actors he brings back over and over again, Kyle McLaughlin, um uh Laura Dern so many mm-hmm. actors that he's worked with over and over again. It says a lot about him, but to come back and be willing to do a show 25 years later, it's mm. incredible. And there's there's a part of me that before I realized the 25-year thing, before I went through and rewatched Twin Peaks um, last year and remembered the 25-year thing, at first I was a little bit bummed out that they were bringing it back because there was kind of a magic between the show and the movie firewalk with uh, firewalk with me and the twin peaks show it created a circle in the sense that uh firewalk with me was the beginning and the end mm-hmm. it introduced the beginning of the tv show but it also ended the tv show which if you guys haven't seen it i sound like a lunatic right now but we are talking about david lynch and it, it the show and the movie are a complete circle what happens yeah. in the future uh is events in the past it's it's hard to explain i don't i hope that it, this doesn't ruin that aesthetic though because <laughs> that's that's pretty incredible in and of itself that you can create something that's circular yeah especially in this day and age where most uh, storytelling is particularly linear um there's 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 a craft to to lynchian storytelling that is i think he's always kind of been that way i mean if you look at projects like lost highway or mulholland drive there's definitely i mean mulholland drive a little bit more loosely but there's definitely a circular feel to them in a weird kind of way you know yeah i think he just uh he loves repeating themes and uh like for example going into mulholland drive there's um he likes repeating things but repeating them in different circumstances to yeah. to see how they change even though it might be the same thing. Uh, for example, uh, Naomi Watts' character, who has a different name in each section, so don't ask me to remember. Um, <laughs> I think one of them is Betty. I can't remember. But anyways, in the first section of the film, she's practicing that scene. Uh, yeah. And then later, she does that same exact scene with Chad Everett, who, by the way, I'm named after. Um, yeah, nice. Nice. 
uh, they do that, and she does that scene, and she does it differently because now she's actually performing the scene. But to take those same exact words and play them in a completely different context, um, and not just in the fact that in one she's practicing and in the other one she's more performing, but in the first one it's woman to woman, in the second one it's man to woman, in the first one it's violent. Yeah. It's it's it, until you realize that they're practicing lines, you think that she's going to kill Rita. I don't know why I remembered her name. Um, <laughs> and in the Cause second, because it stays constant. Sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, you're right. It does. And in the second one, it's it's super sexual. And to go here, what is the thing in the middle that makes that happen? Sure. You know, oh, the road on the left, it's on fire. Okay, he can't go left, so now he has to go right. Um, whereas if you're writing from following the character and following the story it's possible that maybe that's even easier because you know you can always cut out stuff and and until you find the road yeah but there's I, I, it's funny because it's it's funny you say that because when, when i write a character um or i always start from the outside looking in so i always start um as though i'm a, a quiet observer in that, that character's life like i watch them do things i try to figure out what their motivations are and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, there's a transition in which I go from being an observer to being first person in the character's mind. Um, so even if it's not necessary, for example, I develop elaborate and, and specific histories um, that, that lead to the, 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 the actions or the motivations of that, that character. Um, and there's, there's actually a, a, a character that I really, really liked um, for a story that I was writing that I ended up scrapping um, the entire project of because I loved the character, but I hated, I hated where I put him. Um, and it's really tif- it was re- actually really difficult for me to write out anything that made sense with who the character had become over time to me. It's really strange. And I think that's, a, um, that's something that maybe isn't talked about as often as it should be. This idea um, things are not glued together. Uh, if something doesn't stick, it doesn't stick, but it doesn't mean you have to throw everything away, right? You sure. Know, you can sit on that character, and then one day the story that that character needs is going to come to you. And, sure. And maybe when that happens, maybe you'll end up writing a book like we're talking about. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think that for me, I try not to stick to any philosophies on writing because the the radiation will destroy you. Um these these things are a reality and and uh or in the book that i've mentioned on the show before where um people only talk to each other in holograms they don't actually meet in the flesh uh the only time they ever see a human being in the flesh is once a year when they see a doctor um when we every time we're holding our phones and text messaging each other from across the table mm-hmm. we're we're stepping closer to that world um the it's it's like you said it's it's incredible to really try to understand milestones within the story than than being fleshed out people to me and i think as i've gotten older um and as i've i've learned more about people i've become more of a character person rather than a, a story person so you're definitely right like there are a couple of characters that i have floating around in my head that i wrote stories for that just didn't make sense so there's 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 almost a waiting room you know a a, a magical bus that could not digest and create books for children and <laughs> yeah, that's true do interviews and and be able to explain things in a way that people go, oh, I get it. Okay, that makes sense. Sure. And and that was his true brilliance more than anything, more than his writing, more than um, 
his science more than all of these was his ability to digest and regurgitate it. You know, like he's like the he's like the mother bird, chewing things up and then spitting them out for the baby birds so that you know pieces that they can digest. Uh, to your point, I mean, I, I read most of the the robot series when I was ten, eleven, twelve years old, and I understood it then. You know, they, they they were they were basically fables. They were Aesop's fables with robots in and in space. You know, um, so so the, the, that 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 that's such a lasting testament to me of the man's brilliance is his ability to take something so inherently complicated and make it so dramatically simple, um, and not only make the concept itself simple, but to also incorporate the meaning of the concept. You know, what it means for society and what it means for for me as a person. Um, and wrap it all into that too, and make it so that I could understand it at eleven years old. That's just unbelievable. It's 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 really incredible, especially when you consider the fact, like you said, that he grew up in a um, non-native English-speaking household. Um, he never learned Russian, which is a testament to his parents to choosing not to speak Russian. Even though later he kind of wished they would because he wanted to learn it, yeah. um, but. Isn't a bad thing. And wow, didn't see that coming. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you this question um, in return. But I think that uh, the reason that helping people be more creative and, and doing that is important to me um, is because I believe that creativity changes everything. And I don't mean because of the things that people create. Even the act of creating something gives people an expression that they may not have in any other way in their life. People in poor economic situations, people in um, frustrating situations, people in abusive situations, just having an outlet can be the difference between survival and non-survival, the difference between sanity and insanity. So to me, that's the first step of everything, is giving people a way and showing people ways and forcing people to realize that they can just make things and they can say things and they can let things out. Um, everything else comes after that. I don't, I don't know why, why is, why is creativity so important to you? Um, creativity is important to me, not necessarily because of the, the act of creating itself, but because I, I find more and more that my happiness is very tangibly linked to how creative I'm being at any given time. And so I think for people, they would be less miserable if they had an outlet for their brains that way. I think your brain just gets bogged down. Um, it gets sad um, and it gets, it gets slow if it doesn't have a chance to be creative. And I think that, that if you, it, 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 I challenge anybody out there to, to take a look at their lives for what they've been and to think of the the period of time in which they were most happy, and I almost guarantee that there was some part, you know, like I I I talk to some of my friends now who work in tech and ask them when they were their happiest, and they say, oh, when I was in college and playing in a band, you know, that, that's that's very clearly a, a, an indicator to me that that the level of creativity that you have in your life is directly linked to how happy you ultimately are, or how how much easier it is for you to find happiness. So I think for me, with the podcast and with with why creativity is important to me. I think the most difficult thing for most people who, who, are, who are thinking about being creative but haven't been in a while is where the heck do you start? 
you know, what is it, what is it, what tools do you need and, and what avenues do you explore in order to find a way to take on a creative project? And I think for both guys, for guys like you and I, for example, who are taking on creative projects all the time, I think it's, it's, it's very, I think it's useful for us to give people who are trying to do that a perspective and a set of tools that will help them to get to that easier and ultimately find an easier way to find their own happiness. Oh, my God.